Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, November 20th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Did Benjamin Franklin really think that the turkey should replace the eagle as America's national bird? Analyzing the microbiome of Leonardo da Vinci's drawings, and scientists who may have figured out a way to rewind cellular aging in humans. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. In 1782, the United States decided to make the bald eagle its national bird. Or it basically became the national bird after being selected for the official seal of the country, something that took six years and three different committees to complete, just in case you thought bureaucracy was a problem born in more recent years. A small white eagle was included in one of the designs from the third committee, and the person eventually responsible for finalizing the design of the seal, Secretary of Congress Charles Thompson, decided to make the eagle the center point of the seal, since eagles had long been used throughout time and across several different cultures as a sign of strength. But to make it more American, he changed it to the bald eagle, a species unique to North America. Benjamin Franklin was part of the first committee that was supposed to come up with the National Seal, alongside Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, and a legend has developed over the years that he thought that instead of the eagle, the United States' national bird should have been the turkey. Now, especially because the eagle wasn't proposed for the seal until two committees after Franklin's involvement, I don't think he was in those committee meetings fighting for the turkey to be on it, and there's zero historical evidence that he did anything like that. But two years after the seal was finally chosen, with the bald eagle on it, Franklin did write a letter to his daughter explaining why he thought the turkey would have been the better choice. And this is what some people point to as evidence that he at least casually held this opinion. Except that it wasn't really a letter to his daughter. He never wrote about politics to his daughter. This was more of an open letter, or an 18th century subtweet. It was also, importantly, satirical. And while he does dwell on the turkey being a better symbol of America than the eagle, he's not actually talking about the seal of the United States of America when he does. He's talking about the seal of the Society of Cincinnati, an organization founded in 1783 which still exists. It is basically for those who were officers in the Continental Army and their French counterparts to serve as a hereditary society that would preserve patriotic history, which still is basically what it does today. Franklin and several others were opposed to the idea of this Society of Cincinnati because they had just established this new country liberating themselves from the formal structures of things like nobility and primogeniture in Europe. And while some critics like Edenis Burke were able to write at length about their opposition, Franklin, as ambassador to France at the time, had to be a bit more diplomatic. Hence why he chose to write a basically fake letter to his daughter that he intended to make public. But then on counsel from advisors, ultimately he decided to never make it public during his lifetime, and it wasn't made public in full until 1817, when it was published in a book of his writing, and it's now included in the National Archives. Now, despite all of that, he does go on quite a rant about the eagle being an inferior symbol of America compared with the turkey. And while he starts by talking about the design of the seal of the Society of Cincinnati, he opens it up more broadly to the idea of the eagle as America's national bird. 
It does seem, however, that he's really playing this up as part of the satire of the overall piece, especially as this follows a rather long argument about the failings of hereditary societies and how they bestow honor without merit. Regardless, it's pretty funny, so here is Ben Franklin's opinion on America's national bird. Quote, Others object to the bald eagle as looking too much like a dindon, or turkey. For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen as the representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. You may have seen him perched on some dead tree where, too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk, and when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish and is bearing it to his nest for the support of his mate and young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. With all this injustice, he is never in good case, but like those among men who live by sharping and robbing, he is generally poor and often very lousy. Besides, he is a rank coward. The little king bird, not bigger than a sparrow, attacks him boldly and drives him out of the district. He is therefore by no means a proper emblem for the brave and honest Cincinnati of America who have driven all the king birds from our country, though exactly fit for that order of knights which the French call Chevalier d'Industrie. I am not on this account not displeased that the figure is not known as a bald eagle but looks more like a turkey. For in truth, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird, and withal a true original native of America. Eagles have been found in all countries, but the turkey was peculiar to ours. The first of the species seen in Europe being brought to France by the Jesuits from Canada and served up at the wedding table of Charles IX. He is besides, though a little vain and silly, tis true, but not the worse emblem for that, a bird of courage, and would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. End quote. So, those who would be part of the Society of Cincinnati, it seems Franklin thought, reading in between the lines of the satire, perhaps the eagle was a good mascot for them. But for the true salt-of-the-earth Americans, the turkey would be much more fitting. Discover Magazine actually spoke to some experts about what we know today about eagles and turkeys, and it lines up with Franklin's contemporary observations. Quoting Discover, Technically speaking, bald eagles are opportunistic predators, says Ed Hahn at the National Eagle Center in Wabasha, Minnesota. That means the birds feed on the flesh of dead animals, steal from other animals, and hunt for their own food when necessary. The hierarchy really is in that order, Han says. Scavenging first, stealing second, hunting third. And that's determined purely by how easy it is to obtain their food, end quote. And Han also confirms that bald eagles do retreat from attacks by much smaller birds. Turkeys, meanwhile, quoting again, tend to flock together and find strength in numbers. Turkeys protect their own, but they're also cooperative, Tanya Perez, a zoo archaeologist at Florida State University, says, adding that she has seen a tom, or male turkey, pin down a dog on a farm when it stepped out of line. Even male turkeys flock together. Younger male turkeys, called jakes, often stick around dominant males after a pecking order has been established, and groups of turkeys have been known to scare off raccoons and other predators encroaching on land, Perez says, end quote. So which animal is more emblematic of America? Then or now, I think it's probably a matter of opinion. But if you hear anyone in the next week claiming that Franklin thought the turkey should have been the national bird, now you can at least bust that myth for them a bit.
So here's a field I had never really thought about until this morning, the molecular study of works of visual art. Basically using the microbiome of hundreds years old paintings, statues, etc. to ascertain their geographic or material origins as well as other information. The latest study, led by an interdisciplinary team of researchers, curators, and bioinformaticians from Austria, is looking into seven of Leonardo da Vinci's drawings from the 15th century. In a study published today in the journal Frontiers in Microbiology, the team detailed their findings from their use of a third-generation genomic sequencing approach called Nanopore. Quoting Fizz.org, Overall, the results show a surprising dominance of bacteria over fungi. Until now, fungi were thought to be a dominant community in paper-supported art and tended to be the main focus of microbial analysis due to their biodeterioration potential. Here, a high proportion of these bacteria are either typical of the human microbiome, certainly introduced by intensive handling of the drawings during restoration works, or correspond to insects' microbiomes, which could have been introduced a long time ago through flies and their excrements. A second interesting observation is the presence of a lot of human DNA. Unfortunately, we cannot assume that this DNA comes from the master himself, but it might rather have been introduced by the restoration workers over the years. And finally, for both bacterial and fungal communities, correlation with the geographical location of the drawings can be observed." End quote. Dr. Guadalupe Pinar, the lead on this and other microbiome-based art studies, emphasizes that this information can be used both to trace back the history of various artworks, particularly useful for artworks with unknown origins and other questions surrounding them, but also inform preservation for future artworks, providing insight into better methods for conservation of the visual appearance of art over time which could really come in handy in Spain so that they could avoid the need for all of those unfortunate amateur restorations. All right, so for the non-scientists listening, allow me to go back to high school biology for just a moment. Do you remember telomeres? They're the sort of caps on the ends of chromosomes. They protect the chromosome from deteriorating over time. Except that the telomeres themselves also shrink over time, meaning that our chromosomes are less protected as we age. When a cell replicates, the telomeres replicate with it, but not completely. Tiny fragments of DNA don't make it into the replicated cell. And quoting Science Alert, Shorter telomeres put sequences further down the chromosome at higher risk of hazardous mutations. These mutations coincide with changes that predispose us to a bunch of age-related conditions, not least of all diseases such as cancer. That's not necessarily to say that we age because our telomeres shrink, but there is a connection between telomere length and health that researchers are keen to investigate further. End quote. You can speed up the erosion of your telomeres by doing things like not getting enough sleep or eating poorly, and you can kind of slow down that loss by being active regularly, etc. But the real magic would be being able to reverse erosion that has already happened, to regrow the telomeres, essentially, to make them longer. And scientists from Tel Aviv University say they've done it. They put 26 participants in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber for five 90-minute sessions per week over the course of three months. At the end of three months, some of the participants' telomeres had extended by up to 20%. 
Now, it was a very small study, and way more needs to be done to confirm this, but it's still exceptionally cool because despite studies on mice and telomeres being reset outside of someone's body, this type of telomere extension inside a human body, and to that extent, has never been done before. Quoting again, the key, it seems, is hyperbaric oxygen therapy, or HBOT, the absorbing of pure oxygen while sitting in a pressurized chamber for extensive periods. HBOT has attracted controversy in the past for claims that it could treat a range of conditions. It's usually the kind of therapy you'd give a diver who came up too fast from the ocean depths, or to kill off oxygen-sensitive microbes in a wound that just won't heal any other way. But oxygen-rich environments are also behind a weird paradox, one where the body desperately stirs up a host of genetic and molecular changes that typically occur in a low-oxygen one. In this study, the researchers were able to show that the genetic changes provoked by the HBOT has extended telomeres and also had a potentially positive effect on the health of the tissues themselves. A slightly smaller sample of volunteers also showed a significant decrease in the number of senescent T-cells, tissues that form a vital part of our immune system's targeted response against invaders." End quote. All of that said, again, the study needs to be expanded and replicated, but even then, there are many potential pitfalls. I mean, for one, this is probably not the only piece of the puzzle in terms of reversing aging, and even defining what one means by reversing aging is up for debate. But also, crucially, cancers often reactivate telomerase to stay ahead of the curve when growing, so this strategy could, as Science Alert poetically puts it, quote, Make this holy grail a potentially poisoned chalice we need to understand better before drinking too heavily from. End quote. That said, and this is completely a layman's perspective, but, you know, maybe if we don't reverse aging, this still could hold a key to learning some crucial information about curing cancer. Maybe I'm just being too optimistic. That's it for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go write a Change.org petition about why the Jackson Bird should become the national bird of America. I hope you have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you again on Monday.